5: From our nation's
6: capital. This is Bloomberg Sound On. You can continue to count on Nato's support for as long as it takes.
0: I would expect that
7: we will uh, begin to see an escalation of the the fighting again. We
6: We are not
5: afraid of the federation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top name. How about all the people who weren't able to go to college? There's
1: very little discussion about why our college and universities cost so much money. It
7: creates a division within his own caucus, but also in the country.
5: Bloomberg Sound On with George. Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
8: The U.S. pledges billions more in weapons for Ukraine as the war reaches the six month mark today. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the Pentagon and NATO double down on the war effort just as fighting begins to intensify once again. Retired Navy Admiral James DeVrides will join us on the strategy for Ukraine and how long this could last. President Biden makes good on his promise to forgive some student loans. The plan he just announced, though, goes a lot further than that. We'll get details from Bloomberg White House reporter Nancy Cook, who helped to break the story. Analysis from our signature panel this day after another primary night. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. And we start things off. President Biden today announcing the U.S. will send Ukraine its largest weapons package to date. It's almost three billion dollars in surface to air missiles, mortar rounds, radar systems, drones. The announcement delivered in writing, coinciding with Ukrainian Independence Day. The ceremonies in the capital of Kiev is a sound from a reef laying by President Zelensky and the First Lady of Ukraine as the nation marks 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union. Here's Zelensky in a news conference earlier today with translation. We, we are not afraid of the Russian Federation, the danger our
2: country,
8: the rest of the civilized world is supporting us. We are not afraid of the Russian Federation, he says six months in. But more intense fighting is coming and we're joined to talk about what is next. By retired Navy Admiral, former NATO Allied Supreme Commander James Stubridis, now Bloomberg contributor and vice chair of the Carlisle Group, author of the book To Risk It All. Admiral, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Joe. Now that we've reached the six month mark in this conflict, there's a huge sense of accomplishment in Ukraine and here in the U.S. because, well, nobody predicted Ukraine stay in the fight for this long. We got it through six months. It's kind of remarkable. But then, Admiral, the sobering realization follows that this will not end anytime soon. How long can Ukraine keep this going?
2: Oh, I think indefinitely. Um, this is turning into a stalemate. And I think a pretty good model, frankly, is the Korean War. Um, North and South Korea is still in a state of war, technically, occasional military operations go back and forth, both nations jockeying on the world stage. Um, I think this one has every possibility of going on for a lengthy period of time. And that's the worst news for Vladimir Putin, because over time, he'll continue to be outside the global economy, and it'll it'll put enormous downward pressure on his economic situation. Mm
8: -hmm. The U.S. is announcing another three billion dollars in military aid for Ukraine, and it appears to be coming with the promise for plenty more uh, as needed here. But it's been interesting to to hear the the administration's language around this and, and even that from NATO suggesting that some of the arms that we're sending right now are not for the imminent battle, but for months down the road. Are we still giving Ukraine what it needs? Uh,
2: We are, Joe, and um, I think the proof is in the pudding. The results show that we are. We've stopped the Russian uh, advance effectively cold. Um, They're not going to be able to roll over the entire country as they wanted. Um, They're going to have to settle at some point for some portion of Ukraine. And that's, um, you know, still to be determined whether the Russians uh we'll even get that much so um we're sending the right weapons and i'll make two quick points yeah. one is yep we've added three billion dollars the total tab now is north of 10 billion but in the context of what we spent in iraq and afghanistan where we spent mm. billions and billions of dollars every week um, this is not a huge amount of money and we can continue to do this and we ought to continue to do this and the second quick point is um, back to the question you asked a moment ago. Um I think the uh, the polling in the United States shows, A strong majority of Americans support this and Mm -hmm. understand why we need to stop Vladimir Putin.
8: Which is going to be pretty important a few months down the road, especially if we're still talking about elevated energy prices, the winter heating season, and so forth. Uh, We heard from the administration today on Bloomberg. Amanda Sloat is Senior Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council uh, with a clear, expressing a clear expectation, if not concern, about much more concerted fighting in the weeks ahead. Admiral, listen to what she says. and We'll have you respond.
5: I would
7: expect that we will uh, begin to see an escalation of the, the fighting again. Uh, everybody is obviously very conscious of, of winter coming up. Uh, the muddy season starts in, in mid-fall. Uh, and so there is going to be a desire by both sides to make as much progress on the ground as they can before we move into the, the winter months.
8: It's an anonymous line. Winter is coming. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, what does Ukraine need to do now to get ready?
2: Um, first and foremost, take the weapons systems that are flowing so freely. We've talked about the U.S. contributions. There are um, equally enormous levels of resources coming from our European colleagues in NATO. Number two, they need to go on the offensive in and around Kherson, which is a major city gateway to Crimea. By doing that, they'll draw troops away from Putin's main military effort up in the Donbass. So, offensive operations. And number three, the Ukrainians need to continue their actually quite remarkable abilities to reach behind the front lines and take out Russian logistics, sinking the Black Sea flagship, Mm -hmm. knocking down dozens of aircraft on a base in Crimea. Um, The Ukrainians are showing a great deal of creativity in war. That's often a key to victory.
8: You're a sailor, of course, Admiral. Uh, The concern about keeping the Black Sea open and secure remains a, a major one. Are we outfitting Ukraine with the weapons it needs to continue keeping ports open if that's even possible through the winter or simply attacking Russian vessels in the water and I ask you that now against this backdrop of President Zelensky claiming that they they want to take Crimea back that the war will end in Crimea
2: yes I've been following President Zelensky's commentary I think both sides are going to create very high levels of expectation in their rhetoric We'll see where it all lands once negotiations occur. But you're right to point at the importance of the sea in all of this. Here's some good news for a change. Um, The Turks negotiated an agreement between the Russians and the Ukrainians to export grain. That's working well. Uh, Dozens of ships have left, more are coming in. That will help the Ukrainian economy. It'll keep the major port of Odessa busy and open. It'll keep a a route through the minefields that have been laid in the Black Sea by the Ukrainians to protect their shores. Mm -hmm. So that's going well. And finally, yes, we should be giving the Ukrainians the ability to reach out and touch the Russian Black Sea fleet as they did so successfully in sinking the Moskva, the flagship a couple of months ago. Is that drone warfare or is that
8: uh, ship to ship warfare or, or something I'm not thinking of?
2: It is uh, using shore based cruise missiles Uh that can reach out to sea and they have to be given direction and targeting by drones. So it's a combination. Uh, Ukraine does not have the naval forces to go toe to toe with the Black Sea Fleet, but they can hurt them badly from the shore. Using drones for targeting and long range cruise missiles.
8: You said just last week that Russia is pushing the world to the edge of a potential nuclear crisis. We're watching what's happening in this ongoing Russian occupation of Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine. This doesn't look like it's going to end any time soon. Is it leverage for Vladimir Putin? What's he trying to do?
2: He has three goals in occupying that nuclear power plant. Number one is simply to deprive the Ukrainians of about 20 percent of their electricity, which comes from that Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant. Number two, Putin is kind of trying to scare the Europeans. He's sort of waving the Chernobyl scenario at the Europeans. I think it's highly unlikely he's going to go in that direction because Uh, prevailing winds will deposit radioactivity on his shores as well and thirdly uh, Putin believes that uh, because it's a nuclear site Ukrainians won't attack it in force and as a result he can use it as a kind of mini sanctuary for his forces it's very strategically located near that city of Kherson that I mentioned a moment Mm -hmm. ago does this war
8: end in in some sort of fade out of attrition as opposed to a a climactic decisive win i presume you still think on behalf of ukraine
2: Um, i think it ends with a negotiation an armistice agreed to by both parties whether that's six months from now or six years from now i think is hard to predict but uh, certainly for the next six months you're going to see both sides maneuvering, trying to gain as much territory as they can, because both sides are burning through resources. On Putin's side, Mm -hmm. too many killed in action, wounded 70,000, 80,000, too much equipment destroyed. His burn rate is terrible. And on the other side, we mentioned it earlier, the patience of the West, the support for the weapons going to the Ukrainians. Both of those are dwindling resources. Six months from now, I think both sides will be looking for a negotiating table.
8: Well, you just said something. uh, You just said something very interesting. As a professional warrior, you're looking at this and allowing for up to six years. You said this could be six months or six years. Is that really what America needs to brace for?
2: I think that, uh, again, let's look at the Korean War. That's been going on since the 1940s. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What I don't think we're going to see is massive levels of combat this is going to dwindle down to a kind of a a stalemate a frozen conflict is the term that's sometimes used there'll be flare-ups here and there but uh, i think that it is more likely we'll get to a negotiation sooner rather than later my point in mentioning a six year um, and pointing to the korean war is simply that war is unpredictable
8: retired navy admiral currently vice chair at the Carlisle Group. James DeVridis, his new book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. It's our pleasure as always, Admiral. Stay in touch with us on Bloomberg.
2: Thanks so much, always.
8: We'll assemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg.
0: Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals, and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
1: this
8: is bloomberg sound on on bloomberg radio so another three billion dollars in weapons for ukraine that's just from the u.s alone but it's not all on the way yet it's not on a plane or a ship right now it's great information on the terminal from our pentagon team you're not going to hear this anywhere else unless you watch news briefings all day the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call, you've heard him on this program, said this to reporters at the Pentagon. The new aid is aimed at a year from now, two years from now, to dissuade Vladimir Putin from the notion that he can wait everybody out. Let's assemble the panel with us, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors on this six-month and Independence Day, both coinciding for Ukraine. Rick, as I read in this story, uh, and it's a very important part of this package, six additional national advanced surface-to-air missile systems have yet to even be put under contract and produced. These are made by Raytheon. So are are we signaling our intentions to be there two years from now, or are we actually buying this stuff?
7: Yeah, there has been a concerted effort by the administration to start broadcasting a comfort level with the idea that this conflict's going to last a long time, huh. and so I think this messaging around the three billion dollar package—you know, here are the kinds of things we're going to send—that will help build the defense infrastructure of the country, not just fight the war. So, you know, these these items you just mentioned, the NASAMS—you mm-hmm. um, know, their air defense package—so they would go around, you know, a, a capital city or somewhere like that. Uh, and be used set to protect up the Washington area. To protect yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. uh, especially with unmanned attacks, and so there are other kinds of systems that go after jets, and so you know you can see the the narrative building around this administration, which is like, hey, we're in it for the long haul. You know, so this know isn't so Putin much about
8: a, a war that drags on two years, Rick. This is for building a post-war military. Is that what you're saying?
7: Yeah, this is this is to give the tools to the ukrainians to really satisfy their security needs long term
8: yeah three billion dollars is a lot of money genie in two years is a long period of time how many americans do you think are are aware of this and does the white house need to be doing a better job telegraphing that i mean most people were not at the undersecretary's briefing
1: that's right. And, and you know, Zelensky himself has been saying in the last couple of days exactly what you are saying is the concern is that people across the world, not just in the United States, yep. forget about the plight of Ukraine. And as this drags out, this is what Putin has been banking on to the Biden administration's point that Americans and the West just simply don't have the stamina to stay in this. So that's why this, you know, 2.83 billion today is so important, because it suggests along with Boris Johnson's surprise visit to Kiev that there is international and Western support there. The challenge is, of course, it's been $13 billion total, and that has to sustain over a long period. I'm not saying the money, although it does, but the support And that's going to be very important to your point that they message this appropriately. And again, there can be issues that crop up that we don't imagine at this moment that will diminish support in a big way.
8: I'm glad you mentioned Boris Johnson. We never know who's going to show up and keep to all
5: our friends. I simply say this. We must keep going. We must show as friends of Ukraine that we have the same strategic
8: endurance Uh as the people of Ukraine. Almost missed him, didn't you? Uh, showed up there, I believe, unannounced, at least publicly, to take part in the ceremonies today, and they held a joint news conference. Who else needs to show up there, Rick? I mean, Joe Biden, I'm assuming, is not going to Kiev anytime soon. But we've been talking a lot more about visiting Taiwan than we have Ukraine lately.
7: Yeah, and and that's disappointing because uh, I I think it was great of Johnson to go on Independence Day. We've heard all kinds of reports about what kind of initiatives the Russians were going to try and take. Everyone was worried that there'd be active shelling in Kyiv. We actually suggested to get the U.S. uh, citizens out of the country. Um, So so the fact that he was willing to do that, um, he gets the Profile and Courage Award for (laughs) the day. But I do think it's important uh, to keep up the public diplomacy uh, in support of, uh, of Ukraine, and I think really important as we get in toward this G20 meeting in November where Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Putin is, is actually planning to attend. And so what kind of pressure can we put on? How do we heighten the visibility you know, of Zelensky and uh, the activities in Ukraine uh, in advance of him coming out of his hole and,
8: and trying to act as if you know there's nothing wrong? What if Joe Biden did show up in Kiev, Jeannie? Is that good politics right now? What if that was your sort of October surprise ahead of the midterms, or is it foolish?
1: You know, I I was wondering if he might do that just before the midterms. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. the danger there is it would look like it was driven by politics. And I think for Joe Biden and so many other American public officials, not just in his administration, but bipartisan, this is something that they see as sort of above politics, if there can be such a thing, or Mm -hmm. bipartisan. So I think he's got to be careful about the timing. But most important is the issue of security. And that's something that we heard when, when they were considering him going prior. It was not secure for him to go and maybe that will change and we will see him there but i give johnson a lot of credit for going it's that kind of spotlight that that needs to be kept on this in order for the public support to sustain itself
8: secret service wouldn't deal with it still right rick
7: yeah you need a lot more naysayers around kiev to want to have the president (laughs) of the united states show
8: up in the plaza got it yeah so they actually need to be ordered by the way the six i mentioned the the prior two that had been promised have still not been ordered yet so it is an interesting uh, sort of component of this defense, uh, that, we're, well, support of the defense program here that we're providing that not a lot of people are talking about. Jens Stoltenberg at NATO today pledging basically unlimited support.
6: You can continue to count on NATO's support for as long as it takes. For
8: as long as it takes, the word from NATO. Rick and Jeannie, stay with us for the hour. Of course, our signature panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Glad you're with us as we turn to the big news from the White House next. Student loan debt relief forgiveness, but also a lot more than the headline is telling you. We'll dig into this with Bloomberg White House reporter Nancy Cook, who helped to break the story. I'm Joe Matthew again. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. President Biden made the announcement today at the White House.
6: Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced twenty. percent
8: just as you read in the story from Bloomberg White House reporter Nancy Cook, out ahead on this yesterday and early today. And she's with us now to pick through some of the details of this plan. Nancy, welcome back to the program.
3: Thanks for having me.
8: Let's start with what this does. $10,000, that sounds familiar, in loan forgiveness for most. 20000 for those with Pell Grants but there's also a cap on undergrad loan repayments. How does that part work?
3: So basically the way that it would work is that you would take, um, you know, if you're, if you're below the 125000 so if you make less than $125,000 a year, mm-hmm. it would cap your monthly um, payments at 5% of your income. And that's a huge thing. I mean, I feel like the $10,000 forgiveness yeah. and the $20,000 forgiveness, that's really sort of like the headline news and what people have been watching. But the Biden administration is also trying to make tweaks to the student loan repayment system going forward beyond just this one time debt cancellation this cap would impact
8: a lot more it people it would
3: impact a huge amount of people yeah. um and and also there's like some nuance there too like you know it could affect um, the student loan forgiveness also applies to people who have parent plus loans so mm-hmm. if you're a parent for instance and you co-signed for you know one of your stu- your kids loans as like a bunch of people do to help them you know, that loan also counts for loan forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Like the kid and the parent can both take advantage. But my point is, this is actually a big deal. And it's something that progressives um, have wanted for a long time and they're thrilled with the win.
8: Some are not though. And it's been interesting to hear the reaction from uh, from certain politicians, from certain groups like the NAACP. Joe Biden promised this on the campaign trail. And we went back and listened to a couple of his rallies yesterday yeah. when people were honking horns back in COVID, you know, the drive-ins. He even mentioned the $10,000 mm. at every turn, the $125,000 cap. So why, why criticism from the left?
3: Well, I think that it, it depends. I, you know, I've talked to different people on the left. I think some people feel like, you know, the NAACP, for instance, was really pushing for him to forgive at least $50,000 in well, student debt. I don't think he was ever going to do that. Um, and so I think it depends who you talk to. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has been very intimately involved in this discussion, you know, I think is, is really happy with this outcome, mm-hmm. you know. Um, People feel like progressives that I spoke to feel like they pushed Biden further than he was likely to go. Okay. You know, Biden, I feel like left to his own devices, would have done $10,000 in student debt, if, mm-hmm. if anything. And there's a sense that they moved him on, you know, some of these nuance issues that we already talked about, but also the $20,000 for um, Pell Grant recipients.
8: He's doing this all on his own through executive action.
3: Exactly. Does that
8: mean that if another president came in? couple of years from now, they could
3: undo it? Well, the thing is, is that the debt cancellation is a one-time thing. In terms of the cap, though. Oh, sure. Right. In terms of the cap, mm-hmm. they could make those tweaks. Definitely. That's a great point. Interesting.
8: What happens to those loans? Does the government pay them off or do they just vanish?
3: I think they just vanish. Isn't that
8: something? I know. What a country. But now, I
3: also think that that's why, you know, this is a controversial idea yeah. among um Economists, You know, we've been talking about student debt and I've been covering this for a while, but it is like a pretty new political and economic idea. And I do think, you know, if you talk to economists, not the ones who work in the White House, mm. you know, there is a mm. sense that people haven't really tried this before. Yep. And so we're not really sure what will happen to the economy.
8: Well, Republicans are already calling out the administration for worsening inflation. Right. And of course, they point to none other than Larry Summers, which they must love uh, <laughs> in the Biden administration. But he tweeted a couple of days ago. You saw this. Uh, I hope the administration does not contribute to inflation macroeconomically by offering unreasonably generous student loan relief or micro by encouraging college tuition increases. He says it raises demand and increases inflation. But interesting, another tweet he said, every dollar spent, you saw this on student loan relief, is a dollar that could have gone to support those without the opportunity to go to college. That sounds like a tweet that Joe Biden thinks about at night.
3: Well, also, Joe Biden speaks to Larry Summers, and Larry Summers speaks to the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain. I imagine he said these things to them. It's not just Larry Summers who's raising questions. Jason Furman, you know, another top Obama economic official, Mm -hmm. has been very down on student loan debts. Republicans are. I mean, I think the White House decided that this was— You know, a good political thing for them to do ahead of the midterms. It was a way to excite voters. It was also a campaign promise that they wanted to fulfill. Um, It was a way to deal with some of the generational wealth gap issues. and i think that we'll have to see what it does to the economy.
8: You see the, the 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 comments on twitter republicans say there he goes he's literally buying votes now to do this right before the midterm elections. Does the white house have an answer to that? Is that is that part of the talking points?
3: That's not part of the talking points, but isn't that always what political parties do? Well, yeah, I it mean, is. republicans passed a huge tax bill in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um you know, before the 2018 midterms, terms. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel like...
8: This is the way Washington This works. is the
3: way Washington works. Both parties do it when they're in power. <laughs>
8: I just congratulate you on the reporting because this has been so long in coming. I mean, since before he was in the White House. And if you have a terminal, if you're on Bloomberg.com, you saw it with Nancy Cook sharing the byline last evening. Thanks for coming back to talk to us.
3: Thanks for having me, Joe.
8: We've learned a couple of things. You know, look, the president says, by the way, that the, the deficit reduction from his administration more than covers all of this. But... You heard the response from Nancy there. like, well, the Trump administration did the tax cuts in 2017, and that's exactly what the reaction has been, well, from the president himself. He was trying to get ahead of this in the speech while announcing the program.
6: Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive. I will never apologize for helping Americans working, working Americans middle class, especially not to the same folks who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut it mainly benefited the wealthiest Americans and the biggest corporations that slowed the economy, didn't do a hell of a lot for economic growth, and wasn't paid for, and racked up this enormous deficit.
8: So the White House can claim a win here to say that the president's making good on a campaign promise. And even the statement later from the NAACP was a lot more favorable than it was this time yesterday. We'll see how the panel feels about it. The politics... Could be moving on this as we head for the midterms. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis will be with us as we also look back on a big primary night, New York and Florida. Big night for Nancy Pelosi, I keep hearing. But what about Joe Biden? It's the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for being with us. We'll check traffic and markets on the way. This is Bloomberg. Face
0: it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large size companies like yours to easily manage risk
5: You're listening to
8: Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden makes good on the campaign pledge to relieve student loan debt. The forgiveness plan, $10,000 for most, $20,000 in loans for some who receive Pell Grants. By the way, we haven't even mentioned, at least I haven't, if you can forgive me, the extension. This is the final extension. The president announcing four more months on the moratorium on student loan repayment. So that gets you through the year. And this is, as you may well expect, and well, we've already told you this, not playing well on the other side of the aisle. You're going to satisfy that obligation. You do. You follow through. You work hard to do that. Then all of a sudden, other people don't have to. Uh, changing the rules of the game in the middle of the game just is not fair. Congressman Dan Newhouse, Republican from Washington, kind of. Crystallizing what many in the Republican Party think about this. It's a fairness issue, they say, just as well as an economic one. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us. Jeannie, you've got your classroom going to be full of students uh, next week. I, I assume that this is going to play very well with them, but do they vote?
1: Uh, They do. Um, We, I think we will see a fairly robust turnout in the midterm amongst people under the age of 25. But, you know, I, I think for me, I have to say that, you know, this is critically important because, of course, these students are carrying the largest single debt of any group of Americans. And the question that I have for the Biden administration is, yes, relief on this, that is fine. But I think they should couple that with addressing the really problematic issue of college affordability. Because to me, what's happening here is, you know, something of an upstream parable. They are just addressing what we're seeing as the remnants of a problem without addressing the problem. And the problem has been needed to be addressed for many, many decades. The actual
8: and cost of the damn thing?
1: The, the actual cost. And, yeah. and, you know, and Republicans are right. I know a lot of people in college. I know a lot of people who chose not to go, who went to more affordable colleges because they couldn't pay back loans from more expensive colleges. Yeah. People who didn't go and are working and paying taxes to pay for this. They have a right to be frustrated by this. And that's why not just the Biden administration, but Congress as a whole should address once and for all the issue of college affordability, not just deal with the remnants of a problem mm-hmm. without addressing the root cause.
8: There's the forgiveness component here rick and we saw that coming but i was kind of blown away and i think we established with nancy cook a little earlier that you can flip this headline the 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 cap on loan payments going forward of five percent of of someone's discretionary income is a huge deal that that impacts any future student loan borrower going forward how does that play is that something that people are can republicans say that that's a bad idea well, sure.
7: I, I think what they're going to say is that all of this adds to the national debt. Um, uh, it just took a year for Biden to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which mm-hmm. d- which reduced the national debt by just under $300 billion. He just added mm-hmm. $500 billion, including the extension, maybe even more, uh, uh, to replace that. I mean, in one fell swoop, one move of the pen, a year wo- a year's amount of work Jeez. on reducing the debt— has just been wiped out. And so his so, line that this is, is
8: more than covered by deficit reduction is not genuine.
7: No, I mean, and, and by the way, why have deficit reduction if you're just going to pile it right back well, on the next day? I is. mean, like, this is the thing that's confounding most budget watchers is that... that First of all, this should have been done through an appropriation process, right? Mm. Joe Biden, the president, is not allowed to uh, make appropriations. Uh, It's the job of Congress. And so so once again,
8: we talked about this last night, Rick. Let's say Donald Trump wins the presidency in 24. He can rescind this executive action and the cap specifically on his first day in office, yeah, but he can't
7: he can't claw back the five hundred billion dollars worth of deficit that's just yeah. been added back because
8: although he just wouldn't that be a Trump thing, this. Jeannie? You know, hey, sorry, you got to pay it back. We're gonna put this back on your credit card
1: yeah I don't think anybody could claw it back but I think an even bigger issue is can Democrats or quite frankly Republicans as well once you go down this road the incentive is you keep doing it again and so Mm -hmm. you know it's really really hard to pull this back at all because people borrowing tomorrow yes the cap is there but they're gonna be saying hey am I gonna be forgiven that first ten thousand dollars again the issue here is the problem of affordability of higher education Mm -hmm. in this country it should be a public good, just like health care. It should not be only for the wealthy or when you get somebody in office who forgives a loan. That's the critical issue that needs to be addressed. And this is all icing around the cake at this point.
8: Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis make up our signature panel here on Bloomberg Sound On. We got through another primary night and I have to ask you both uh, about it. We're not going to dig through all these races uh, because it's been a bit of time. But there, you know, th- We talked so much about this race in Manhattan between Jerry Nadler and uh, Carolyn Maloney, she lost by a lot. This is a longtime Democratic leader uh, on Capitol Hill, two former allies going at it. But while we consider that race, I want to bring you back to the debate that they had when President Biden came up. Because I was told all day today, and I read all day today, that this was a great night for Nancy Pelosi. Nobody said Joe Biden. This was the New York One debate with Nadler Maloney. And Patel. Should President Biden run
6: again in 2024? Yes. Mr. Nadler. Too early to say it doesn't serve the purpose of the Democratic Party to to deal with that until after the midterms. Ms. Maloney.
8: I don't believe he's running for re-election. Whoa. Hmm. Okay, that prompted a a whole round of uh, stories forcing her to apologize the next day on CNN.
1: Mr. President, I apologize. I want you to run. I happen to think you won't be running. But when you run or if you run, I will be there 100 percent. You have deserved it. You are a great president.
8: Rick, it just makes me wonder uh, what role, if any, Joe Biden is going to play in these midterms now that we're pretty much getting through the primary season. You you see what the general is going to look like. Is he going to play a role in it? Yeah, his, uh,
7: certainly he'll play a role in the general. I think his numbers are starting to improve a little bit. I think he had a good legislative session. So uh, I don't think you're going to be able to keep him out of some of these districts. But I think he has minded his P's and Q's, uh, knowing that he was incredibly unpopular in a lot of these districts and, and, and stayed out of a lot of these primaries. So um, uh, he'll be unleashed. Uh, he'll want to see uh, the, the Democratic mm-hmm. tape go over the House and ensure that he has his role in that. And I suspect they'll have him in states uh, campaigning for Senate candidates uh, if they think his numbers warrant it. Um, You know, his popularity has been ephemeral. It's gone up and down. Uh, He's having a good month. But I think things like this student loan forgiveness can put him right back in the box because all those people who liked what he was doing on deficit reduction are going to be grossly disappointed today.
8: You might remember, uh, Jeannie, when we had John Fetterman on, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, is running against Dr. Oz for Senate now. We asked him, you know, how about Joe Biden? He said, I would be proud to have Joe Biden campaign for me here in Pennsylvania. So it depends on the, the race. It depends on the state. Yeah.
1: It does. And we shouldn't forget that poor Carolyn Maloney, she had a bad night last night, but she did that not once, but she did it twice. She also did it with the New York Times editorial board. And so, you know, I I don't think it's ever good politics to say that the president of your party either should not run or should not campaign with you. It does you no good, particularly when you're facing a primary. it made little sense from the beginning for her to say that. And of course, it was turnout to a large extent that really got her last night. And she is now, of course, talking about issues of sex. Sexism, which are themselves real. And so I think we're going to hear a lot more from her on that going forward.
8: Boy. You know, I, you probably saw the back and forth between Fetterman and Dr. Oz. I have to ask you about this just while we're still here, because it's it's kind of amazing, the fact that this even took place. This brings us back to Wegner's, right, and the crudité. I thought i was do some grocery shopping.
5: I'm at Wegner's, and I, my wife wants some vegetables. Dr. Oz, crudite. he
8: went there shopping. He's getting the vegetables for the so-called crudité. They hit him for that. John Fetterman says we call that a veggie platter in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's no tequila in and crudite, and uh, it's not Wegner's. It's Wegman's uh, veggie tray was the, the term. So Dr. Oz doubles down. Did you see the statement that uh, that he said if if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he would have had a maybe he would not have had a major stroke and would not be in the position of having to lie about it constantly. The Fetterman campaign was quick to write back and call him out for insensitivity. Uh, is this fair game, uh, Rick, when you're talking about a candidate's health on the campaign trail? Yeah,
7: I would think the doctor in Doctor Oz would have understood the caution about lecturing people about their diets and 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 what causes strokes. So. I thought that was insensitive. I was really enjoying the crudité battle, though. I mean, that was actually starting to have a lot of fun. But I think one of the things Dr. Oz has to start worrying about is if Fetterman gets him into this tête-à-tête on on memes, he's going to lose that race. Uh, He needs to be talking about inflation. He needs to be talking about you know what are the bread and butter issues for American families and. Talking about crudités and Fetterman's <laughs> stroke and things like that are not gonna get him votes. And right. so this is a sign of an undisciplined uh, uh, candidate who has never run for office before. And it makes me worry that he's missing the big picture here.
8: Jeannie, Fetterman's uh, replies statement said, I had a stroke, I survived it. I know politics can be nasty, but even then, I could never imagine ridiculing someone for their health challenges. Is this a loss for Dr. Oz?
1: Oh, it certainly is. I mean you can just feel him struggling to catch up and struggling to get, you know, to kind of play around with these issues and memes and online, you know, back and forth. It wasn't just the crudité. it was also the number of houses. And he's been sort of trapped by this. Yeah. And to Rick's point, what he should be talking about is something that does appeal to voters in Pennsylvania. That is inflation. That is gas prices. That is Joe Biden. I mean, you can go through the list. He's got they've gotten him off track and he needs to get back on. On track
8: Jeannie and rick great conversation our panel here on bloomberg sound on you can hear us every night on bloomberg radio 5 p.m washington time if you showed up late subscribe to the podcast you can hear us that way too i'm joe matthew in washington and we'll meet you back here tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics this is bloomberg
4: Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity, while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. Learn more at bloomberglive.com slash sustainablebizsingapore. That's bloomberglive.com slash sustainablebizsingapore.